and welcome back to Why This Film, the podcast where we reach back into your childhood, pluck at a movie, give it a rewatch and have a chat about it. I'm Emily Slade and welcome back. You watched it so many times before and now you're gonna watch it again. But it's been so many years since you last saw it and now you show it to your friends and they're like, what? What am I watching? Why? The, what? Is what? This? Why? Why, Why this film? And I'm joined today by Meg. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Oh, I, thank you for coming. I was delighted when we were we were on Lamperty together on the Lampcast, and you said that you wanted to see the red shoes in cinema when cinema was reopened, and I was like, okay, we need to talk about this because did I did. We just the, become best friends. That's exactly what I said. I'm just like, okay, this is gonna go well. A hundred percent. It was a little premeditated because I'd listened to the Red Shoes episode that you were on and um, I'd been like, who is this? And then I'd like followed you on all of the social medias and like tried to get your attention. And then like when I did Lampady and I found out that you were on it, I was like, quick, say something cool, say something fun, like make her notice you. Um, And now you're here. So my plan worked. (laughs) even better because your chosen movie is 1989's All Dogs Go to Heaven, the IMDb breakdown. A canine angel, Charlie, sneaks back to Earth from heaven, but ends up befriending an orphan girl who can speak to animals. In the process, Charlie learns that friendship is the most heavenly gift of all. Why this film? My God, I can't get over that description of the movie. Isn't it great? <laughs> it's just so wrong. It like the, the beats are there, but my God, no. <laughs> so why this film? I have a deep, deep, deep love and nostalgia connected to Don Bluth movies because I'm Irish, and as these films were made as an Irish American production, they have a deep place in Ireland and in Dublin, and we're always on Saturday afternoons and Sunday afternoons on the local television channels. So I just had access to it the whole time. And like Disney movies were never really shown on Sunday afternoons on television because you had to buy the videos. But Don Bluth movies, they were fed to you and you were told there someone's auntie or uncle worked on this one. Like my boyfriend's <laughs> I swear to God, my boyfriend's grandmother, his cousin told me like, oh yeah, our gran- granny's dog was one of the models for the film. And I was like, no way. <laughs> but like, I love Don Blaze movies because they're a bit darker. They're a bit edgier. They're not afraid to go there. There's a doggy hell in this film, which I was like, as a child, I liked the darker movies. Like Nightmare Before Christmas is another one of my favorites. And like, I'm, I love when kids movies just go there and don't molly coddle and just be like yeah we're going to show you some darkness because there is darkness out there in the world absolutely agree a hundred percent and Don Bluth is so good like most of my notes are how sort of anti-Disney he was despite being a Disney animator in the 80s when he started like 70s 80s when he started making his own stuff it was like straight in there with all this darkness and yeah like Watership Down um all of these like especially within animation I I completely agree like that really edgy horrific nightmare inducing visuals that Disney started to really move away from especially in the 90s and especially now um you don't see it at all with Disney now they they take no risks whereas Don Bluth was like fuck you here are some nightmares and I actually um this movie has a wonderful tonal problem in that it has a kind of terrible tonal problem. And I, I love that about movies. 
um, much like the Hunchback of Notre Dame, where it does go from doggy hell back to like, <laughs> well, it, it goes to doggy hell immediately from the like angelic orphan song of like, I want a mummy and daddy. Anyway, here's dog Satan. Um, <laughs> I love that so much. And more movies need it. Like that real switch up of like, you're not safe. This isn't the poster like this is the movie That's um it. I love that about it because it's kind of like grim fairy tales but like the original of those movies which like Disney have made all those grim fairy tales but like the original stories are dark as fuck <laughs> so bad and like, I think like the Disney movies today like they are very sanitized they are very safe they're full of pop songs and just product placement and emojis and whatever but, like, they've completely forgotten that, like, kids can handle a lot of darkness. A lot of it yeah. goes over their heads and it's not as traumatizing as you think. Some bits definitely aren't. Stay with you uh, into grown, grown adulthood. And I will attest to that. But sure, it did me no harm. So it shouldn't do other kids any exactly. harm. Exactly. It's good for you. It's, it's, it's good, strong, growing up stuff. Like, it's necessary. I think it's a rite of passage to be petrified. And, like, you end up watching it over and over again as a kid. If you're frightened of something, you, like, consume it more. I think that's perfectly healthy. Um, but that's so great that John Booth movies were shown in Ireland on the TV all the time. I feel like they they weren't here. But then I was growing up in the sort of, like, a, a, knowingly I was growing up in the late 90s. And so um it was more the sort of reruns of the live action 80s movies and the sort of wannabe disneys of the early 90s studios that weren't disney rather than don bluth um so i didn't actually see all go all dogs go to heaven until i was in my early 20s because i was going through a sort of checklist of like i haven't seen this animation and i haven't seen this animation and um i only watched it the once and then so this was really my second viewing um it's so fun it's not like anything disney was offering these dogs are smoking cigars and they it's like the scene in pinocchio when they're in the island yeah it's but it's that the whole time and that's so good it feels like it should have an 18 rating because they're like gambling and betting and Burt Reynolds is there not giving a shit about anyone except himself and it's marvelous and I think these anti-heroes are really important to for for children to to see I mean were you aware who Burt Reynolds was at the time or were you just like that is Charlie no not at all (laughs) I did not care the only person that I cared was Don DeLuise who plays Itchy because he also plays Tiger in an American Tale, and yes. yeah, and like he, like Dom DeLuise, and he plays the troll in the Troll in Central Park, another one of the Bluth animations, which I only like I completely forgot about uh, up until I was researching the, for this podcast. I was like, oh my god, I used to love that movie. I probably saw it like three times, but it's part of like the '90s eco warrior animations that kids were fed, like propaganda, which Hell I yeah. I, like Captain Planet and Fern Gully, you just ate the up. Fern Gully that was effect. The message. Yes. yes. Recycle. <laughs> but I didn't know. Dom DeLuise, he was my favorite kind of voice. And I always knew that, like, oh, it's Tiger's voice. It's Tiger's voice. It, was, it wasn't Dom DeLuise until I got older and got into like Mel Brooks films. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize like how many of kind of like the Mel Brooks 
collaborators worked on voice actors on these movies because Cloris, uh, Cloris Lechman, sorry, I'm mispronouncing her name. She's the grandmother in Malcolm in the Middle. She's in Young Frankenstein. She's in so many things, such an amazing actress. But she was in, um, oh, Crimey. She was in Troll in Central Park, definitely with Dom DeLuise. But I was delighted to see that because like, I love Mel Brooks movies as well. And it's great to see just the people, the voice talent that they got up for Don Blue's film was amazing. Because like, I couldn't tell you Disney's 90 movies, apart from The Lion King, I couldn't really tell you anyone who is a voice actor on a Disney's 90s movie. But yeah. I could tell you on Don Bluth's movies well, today now, but not when I was a kid, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when they got into the 90s and Katzen- this is Disney, Katzenberg started bringing in his big names. And an adult would be like, oh, Robin Williams or oh, Rowan Atkinson. But a child would be like, they all they've done is adult comedy up until now. So I have no idea who they are. Um, and in the 80s, I mean, there was no one. It was like, I want to say Zaza Gabor. I don't think that's correct. But there was like a socialite that was in like the Aristocats and the Rescuers who was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, she was a socialite. So <laughs> there's that. But, like, yeah. but no, like no kid knew who she was. They were just like, that is Duchess from the Aristocats. Like that is who that is. Um, whereas you're right, all dogs go to heaven. And all the Bluth movies tended to have more familiar to children voice actors. And, really big names like huge names um I mean oh while we're on voice actors I feel like the elephant in the room um is and this is not a true crime podcast um but um Judith Barsi who played Anne-Marie the voice of Anne-Marie this was her final film um because she was murdered by her father and it is just a shadow that casts itself over this movie, I think, that even when I returned to it, I was like, oh, yeah, is this the, like, murdered girl movie? Like, it's it's such a horrible thing to have happened before it's released. So this was her final movie. Um, I I don't have the words. It's so horrific and so unfair and she is so good here and she's so young um, that I just feel it needs to be aired in case people are listening to this and are like, mm. you need to mention what happened. But like, that's all really I want to say about it. I don't know what you yeah. want to say about it. Well, just, it's, it's, it's a tragedy is what it is. The fact that her mm. and her mother were, were mur- murdered by, their, by her abusive father. And it's unfortunate that like... The, that 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 ties is part of the legacy when it should be that she was a wonderful child actress and child voice actress because yeah. she also played Ducky in the Land Before Time oh, as well. Yeah, and it's, it's just it's unfortunate, it's tragic, and it's a shame because you never know who she could have been, who she could have gone on to be. Oh, and yeah, I think the film is dedicated to her, which is a great tribute. And uh, Don Bluth had some amazing things to say about her around the time of the release of the film, saying how gifted she was and how well she took cues for such a young age. But it's just, un- it's so sad. But only a Don Bluth movie could have like real life tragedy married into the production as well. Literally, like um, he claims that in order to help his grieving process, her concept, um, her art concept was based very much on the mannerisms and the look of Judith Barsi and um, 
so she really is ingrained in this movie in such an iconic way and I mean she is just the the character design of Anne-Marie is like gut-wrenchingly adorable like she is just heartbreakingly cute um it's disgusting how adorable this child is like it's it's of all the like of all the adorable orphans there are in kids movies and there are a lot there are so many it's like she's like a little she's like snow white if she was a little girl and I feel like that way about even the colors of her clothes as well and I yeah. could see, like, you see those subtle Disney references that Don brought from his time at Disney into his own films as well. And obviously it's not just Don, it's like an entire team of people who worked on these films, but he is the, the biggest creative voice in, within them. But like you can see those like little Disney traits that he brings through. And I was a little girl with a, like a little brown bowler haircut, just like her. So whenever I saw a cartoon character who looked like me and I felt seen, I just like latched onto as well, which is I'm only thinking about that out loud now. And I'm like, that is so true because I like Almira or Almira from Looney Tunes who like yeah. hugged and kissed all her, par- her pets until she killed them. And like there's anyone who had like a little bob haircut. I was like, that's me, that's me, that's me. That's me, I'm seen. I'm represented. Yeah. That's me as a cartoon character. Sorry, I just pulled out the wire of my headphones there. <laughs> no, completely the same. Like, if someone was... Because there were so many blondes that when there was a brunette, I'd be like, yes, it's us. <laughs> we are being represented. White women um, finally are represented on screen. <laughs> yeah, literally. Like, at last... <laughs> oh we suck um but yeah um yes so absolutely rest in peace to Judith Barcy what a fantastic performance because as well she is such a good um counterweight to the dastardly horrific deeds of all the other characters in this movie um I mean very Don Bluth there's not many women in this film um, which is I don't have a problem with because um, <laughs> one of my big Don Bluths growing up that we had and we watched a lot was was Thumbelina, which was his sort of bow out to Disney and a terrible, terrible film and representation of women. And there's a lot of Anne Marie I was noticing as I was watching it in Thumbelina, whether they just reuse the art well, it was just the way that Don Bluth would have his like cute smile, but she was meant to be like an an adult woman, not a cherubic child. And there's a lot wrong with Thumbelina. If you want to know more in my personal history with it, go and listen to our Thumbelina episode, um, where my friend drags me across the coals that is Thumbelina. Um, rightly so, because I learned a lot of bad lessons from that movie. Which is why it's nice in here to have a child be the main female um and then you've got this this one just I'm just going through the female characters here a wonderful wonderful like old um (laughs) she's like Peggy from Lady and the Tramp but like 30 years plus (laughs) she's I like want her as a dog um I don't know what her name is but she she has like one line in the casino where she's like oh Charlie 
things have really gone to the dogs here and I was like I I love you you're my favorite character mm-hmm. um so she's there and then you've got the delightful uh whippet angel who is um gorgeous and flighty and candy floss um but with again like a bite to her which is so much fun and I saw in your tweet that you said that one of her lines still gives you nightmares to this day. It's the line from the film. Like, if you come away watching the film with nothing else, it's the haunting sound of, Charlie, you can never come back. When she tells him that, like, because he's left to heaven and gone back to earth, he's never allowed to go back to heaven. And therefore, at some stage, has to go to hell. Which is like, oh, my God, what if I one day just, went back and I could never go back but it's mad because when I think about Charlie you could never go back now I think of Charlie the Unicorn which was like a video from the internet that everyone saw about 10 years ago yeah I love the Whippet Angel and like it's definitely she's definitely one of those characters where it's like oh I'm so elegant and prim and proper but I am so highly strung that if you step into a little line I will bite your head off (laughs) yeah Uh, And she has this wonderful song and she lets herself be sort of seduced by Charlie because she thinks that he's having a wonderful time in heaven. And her role really is to just provide for all the sort of dog angels that come up. Uh, But of course, Charlie's like, it's it's fascinating. So let's jump into this. Um, uh, But very early on in the movie, as we've heard in the plot. Our main character is 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 killed. He's run over and drowned, which is insane. Like (laughs) that is how this movie opens. It's like your favorite character's dead. It opens with him breaking out of doggy jail where he was on (laughs) death row. Death row. Death row at a dog pen, and then he comes back to the casino that he owns, where dogs are phys- visibly drunk and gambling, and there is a prostitute dog. And then his like business partner partner puts him in a car, says there's a surprise, and then pushes him down a pier, and then he either drowns or is crushed by the car. We're not told. He's just dead and in heaven in the He's next scene. Oh, wait, does he go to hell first before he goes to heaven? No, he does go straight to heaven and because all dogs go to heaven oh, and true. um, roll credits. And yeah, no, he this I was going to ask you that because I was watching it on Prime where you can watch it for free. And um, it was like the car started rolling down the pier. Then there was a big splash in the water. And then we were having our like Alice in Wonderland tumbling down the rabbit hole. But it's Charlie going up to heaven moment. And I was like. I mean, I assume he got hit by the car, but like I didn't see it. So I want I was like, is that prime having like a cut version where they thought seeing a dog being run over is too much? Or was that always the way where Don Bluth was like, this is my film. And all of the producers were like, absolutely fucking not. You're not. It's bad enough that you want to kill the main character in the first <laughs> 10 minutes. This isn't scream, Don. But we're definitely not showing him getting squished <laughs> by a car. And he was like, damn it, fine. And like, I want it. <laughs> Apparently, I don't know, maybe that's sadistic, but I want it. <laughs> like, this is like, the more and more I read about Don Blue, the more I'm like, 
what is with this guy? Like, I'm fascinated. <laughs> but also, apparently, he has, like, the un, an unedited version, his director's cut of, of All Dogs Go to Heaven. He has, still has, that, like, has the scenes that were cut that has never been seen. I'm just like, what did he make these people animate? What did he <laughs> not see? Because yeah. we see a lot in this film. And, like all of this got past like the censors and the producers and the bigwigs so like what didn't what did he do that was so awful <laughs> that they were like no we draw the line at that you know this is the man that animated oozing dripping decomposing bodies in the black cauldron that got cut so we know what he's capable of and and i i really think that his animation is at its peak when he's doing the more grotesque stuff like it's always so detailed and interesting to watch and as I say like um, Anne-Marie is beautifully animated in a very cutesy way but it's so fun to see his like gothic interpretations of stuff um, but we don't get it for a while because we don't get to see Charlie die but then he's suddenly in heaven and he's met by this wonderful whippet and, and heaven's gorgeous it's got this really wonderful concept where everyone has a sort of clock that's attributed to them and they have a wonderful duet where Charlie is basically like and I felt this was very adult for an, a character in a kids movie to feel where he's like this is great I would I need spontaneity I need the unknown I need risk and that's not going to happen here and that's why I'm not going to be satisfied there's so much more to it than just I don't want to be dead there's like no I can't have everything premeditated I need risk so I'm going to wind this clock up and go back to earth and that's so cool like it's so easily could have just been I don't want to die but they went that step further. I love the way that the songs in the film, they're, they're not spoon feeding you exposition, but they're doing it in the way that you are enjoying it and understanding it. Like they get the emotional beats right and the nuance of the emotion right. Because I feel like a lot of, again, a lot of other studios spoon feed kids and sugarcoat things where this is like getting into like, proper meta things and philosophical as well I'm kind of like yes I need more time I need to like get the, the most out of my life I haven't had the time to do that yet like you don't really think that like a six-year-old is going to think about that complexity of like I've wasted my life so far I need to get, take more out of my day yeah, <laughs> That's yeah, good. yeah. why not this is probably, exactly this explains why I was such a strange child <laughs> you had the uh the concept of death imprinted on your mind and the concept of wasting your time on earth imprinted in your mind very early on very. which again is not a bad thing because we're all you know in the, in the sort of late 80s through to the early 2000s we all subscribed to this wish upon a star follow your dreams um vibe and don was just there to be like well if we're gonna do it fucking start now and do it because you could die tomorrow which is a brilliant thing to have on the tail end of wishing upon a star um so the two work hand in hand beautifully if you grow up on a diet of disney and don bluth so yeah. perfect combination i just think that like again with the darkness <laughs> the fact that they show gambling that they show death that they show um orphans and they don't immediately get rescued straight away that like they show that like they don't really care about her they're kind of using her 
but like yeah. young kids are like not everyone is like a, a fun mysterious stranger sometimes people like can have ulterior motives and it's like Yes, thank you for teaching about that from the young age. Yeah, and and it's very clever as well, where, like, at one point, Anne-Marie exposes him. He's like, she's like, Carface kept me prisoner and used me, and, and you came along with this promise of more, but you're exactly the same as him. Um, and that's I'm really sorry, unfair. I'm just literally, like, I'm just, the comparison that comes to my mind is Sansa in Game of Thrones telling Littlefinger, you took me from people who, like, murdered my family and gave them to people who murdered my family. Yeah, it's, like, yeah, it's the same kind of vibe, yeah. It's the same vibe, except we don't have to witness a horrific wedding sequence for oh, Anne-Marie as we did for Sansa. Um, and then she's only six in this movie. Yeah, thank God. Um... But yeah, and then, as usual, they have a really lovely uh, mixture because then uh, we've been ominously told and and Charlie comes back and it's a wonderful piece of animation where he's very sort of like white and catching his breath and then the clock starts up again and all of his colour rushes back and it's just, it was just a really fun moment. Um, But then later on in the movie, we've had this completely saccharine scene, very Disney-esque, where we've come to this sort of right so originally I was like is this some sort of puppy orphanage run by this like lovely collie who has a bit of a crush on Charlie because who doesn't he's a bit of a ragamuffin but then I was like is this the boarding school for all of Charlie's illegitimate children oh my god I didn't think about it that way <laughs> that is, is just, just like yeah oh my god but like Flo is just looking after all his litters. Yeah, just he like get because we know he gets around, and I do apologize to Flo in that um I forgot her as a female character. She's sort of, as I say, the sort of matron of this attic space that's just full of puppies that Charlie visits a lot um in theory and is doing so currently to show Anne Marie that he has a soft side and he's just basically bringing like food and treats for these millions of different breeds of puppy with this one woman in charge who's like we all miss you Charlie ooh flutter my eyelashes <laughs> um and I, I think first time I watched it, I was like, adorable little puppy orphanage as a like reflection of Anne Marie's situation. But now I'm like, where are my notes about it? Now I'm like, is that all of Charlie's children? And he has an obligation to bring pizza because that's his like childcare. I do wonder because um, Lonnie Anderson, um, who did the was the voice actress for Flo, was uh, Burt Reynolds. Um, I think at the time that they were going out, and that's maybe why she got the role. So maybe, <laughs> like, if they were going out in real life, like, it stands to reason that's why they brought her on to be this kind of like side chick who's <laughs> looking after all his children. <laughs> his children. But just because we were talking about that scene, the songs in this movie are great but also a slightly bit confusing because it's 1937 and it's based in New Orleans and yet we're getting a Calypso style song. Yes. Why? <laughs> like much like Andrew Lloyd Webber where he was writing Joseph, I feel like the two songwriters sat down and just picked a genre for each song and were like, let's go. Um, 
because we have a sort of bizarre jazzy number where we all learn to share which again feels a bit left field because charlie flips about from being this like absolute rogue to showing that he can teach sharing to children to going back to being awful like really emotionally manipulative and then all of a sudden he learns the value of friendship and like is rewarded it like i love it um but it's you can see why the reviewers at the time were a bit like okay so we've got the little mermaid which is a very very obvious beginning middle end arc movie and then we've got all dogs go to heaven which is a bit more disjointed and a bit more sort of what is his motivations again it's money 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 friendship heaven um yeah but like like, here's the thing one i then this is like my main kind of gripe i usually have with like people who get angry that like Star Wars movies aren't good or Marvel movies aren't good. It's like they're kids' movies. Sometimes, like, let it just be a kids' movie. If kids enjoy it, then that's fine. Sometimes yeah. that's just enough. Sometimes it doesn't have to make complete sense or fulfill all your fan theories. Like, I like that All Dogs Go to Heaven is a bit of a mess. And like yeah. I say, that's down to maybe a bit of interference behind the scenes or just the budget not going as far as Don wanted it or Don just deciding like I want this thing and this thing and this thing and the animator's going like yeah but Don we can't really show a dog getting killed and then go straight to a happy song like we need to think <laughs> about this through <laughs> but it, it makes for such a great vibe and I say disjointed I think episodic is more fair mm. because it there is a through line like of course there is um and the the disjointedness um does work in places so we we have this calypso song about sharing which is absolutely fine and it's it is showing us as you've said before the songs all have a purpose and this one is showing us that charlie has a soft side and he is able to show good traits um and then we have Anne marie's i want song which is like obligatory um to let us know that she wants parents Every orphan's main concern. Every orphan wants parents. Um, And she has this wonderful little, sweet, sweet little song. Um, And then we're in dog hell. We're in doggy hell. We're in (laughs) the most terrifying, like, night on bald mountain meets fucking the black cauldron meets you on acid like it's just it's so scary (laughs) and there's like what even is it it's like a skeletal rat with wings on the edge of a boat made out of bones and it's like they're in the river sticks like he arrives in lava and the boat arises and then there's just like just like these doggy demons and skeletons and little bite a little uh, bats biting at him and it's just like oh god this is actually like a hell hell it's not like a funny haha hell this is like a proper hell which I'm like oh poor because go dark if you're gonna go dark go dark and like this is terrifying it's so scary so scary and of course we're saved because charlie wakes up and we realize it's all a dream 
except for the fact that at the very end of the movie when charlie uh charlie's time is up again and he accepts that he's going to hell because he's uh, sacrificed his life for Anne marie um we have an even scarier moment where the dog satan from before actually exists and it was more a premonition than a dream because it was entirely accurate and he swirls in a big smoke into the real world and allows charlie to go and say farewell to Anne marie before dragging him back to doggy hell and his summoning to get him back is so frightening it's like charlie like it's 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 so he's like in the distance and there is just this like red smoke across the entire town and you're like oh so like dog hell exists and that is what's in charge and it will get you in the end um which is so wonderful for and don bluth loved the title because it's so provocative um I think it's from a quote by Robert Louis Stevenson, but it's 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 so evocative it's and it, it's so provoking because it argues that actually <laughs> you find No, I'm so sorry, just like a pan going on in the background. <laughs> it's difficult. You're trying to be so quiet and then everything like clunks. Um yeah, and like this movie argues that it all dogs don't go to heaven and your dog who you thought was completely innocent and loyal might end up in a hellscape run by doggy Satan. And it's so frightening. It's so scary. Um, And I love it so much. (laughs) I'm just doggy hell. It's one of those scenes that like when you get older and you're like, what the hell was that thing that used to give me bleeding nightmares? And then you look it up and you're like, it comes flooding back to you, the feeling of when you were a kid and you're watching the first time, you're like, this is why I hid my hand on the couch. Okay, okay, yeah, we're still processing this. We're not quite over it. Yeah, still a major part of trauma. I watched horror movies at way too early in age, but I kind of like, glad I did because it kind of desensitized me in a way to the point where I, I love horror films now. But like, I know people like, I'm like, one, my sister cannot watch a horror movie, cannot watch anything even the slightest bit scary, which I find amusing because it's like, it's just storytelling. It's just a story. It's not real. Like, can you not, like, figure out the two? And I think, like, especially with kids, like, it's good to be like, this is all make-believe. All the bad things are make-believe too. Because, like, I think with kids, like, the suspension of disbelief and, like, imagination and like learning that like what's real and what's like fantasy you should include bad stuff in there too because it's Definitely. not just not just good things are fantasy like bad things can be too and that can help lessen like prepare a kid of like it's okay that scary thing it's not going to hurt you it's not going to bite you it's just on the television it's fine which I think this movie does really well I try to do it with my nephew He's um, when he was younger, if he got scared by a certain scene, because I try and show him all the movies that I loved when I was a little kid. And like, like my main thing would be like, we can watch them with the puppets from like the Dark Crystal. Do you want to show? I'll show you a video, which is the people holding the puppets and like learning how to use them just to show you it's not real. They're not real. They're not going to come and get you in the middle of the night. It's just a doll that someone is using, which helps. I love showing the craft behind movies, but also just getting them reassured that like it's not all bad out there it's not yeah 
which is such an important lesson coming from someone who like I still have to convince myself five years ago when I watched The Conjuring for the first time and I stayed over at a friend's house that had a wardrobe at the end of the bed and I just kept seeing that fucking witch hag on top of the wardrobe and I was like (laughs) I had to literally lay there and be like Emily yesterday you didn't know that Bathsheba existed yeah (laughs) she wasn't coming for you then now that you know that she exists she's not gonna suddenly make a beeline for you you're safe. You're, it's exactly the same as it was yesterday when you had no knowledge of her existence. And I have to talk myself through this with like many a villain in a horror movie where I'm like, the zombies from 28 Days Later can't get into your house, Emily, because they don't exist. Um, so, I, yeah, it's it, that's so wonderful that you're like, look, it's a wonderful narrative and art like work that someone has used to tell a story and and then you really get to appreciate horror movies for when they delve into those you know a lot of horror movies recently have been looking at depression and grief and anxiety and all of these really great themes with these fantastic performances from these female actors and um none of them are getting recognized by the academy because it's the horror genre and it doesn't count and it's not real and if you're frightened and if you're distracted by your fear you can almost not focus on the brilliant story that's being told in front of you um so yeah that's really really cool i'll just reassure you about your Bathsheba um talking down when the movie is like the remake start um the trailer was coming out i literally had to what I do now is I'm terrified of a movie. Like, I was so freaked out by the original Tim Curry. It, it like, proper tra- traumatised me more than any other film. And I thought we only saw it, like, once. And, like, oh. But I had to go onto Wikipedia and read, I like, I go on and read the summary of the film to stop myself being terrified. And then it's, like, remember the ridiculous ending from the Stephen King story. And I'm, like, there's a magic turtle? What? And it just like completely get rid of all the freakiness out of your head and just like, oh my God, it's just a stupid story. It's not like that traumatic thing from when you were a kid. It's all grand. It's all, grand. It's all made up. I did exactly the same when I was a teenager, really trying to force myself into horrors. I would always go and read the Wikipedia page beforehand so I knew exactly what was coming and when. I got my friend to storyboard The Descent for me because I had to watch it in film studies for the lighting. We had to watch it and I knew in advance. So I was like, storyboard it for me so I know when to look away. So I would look down at my storyboard when the like thing appeared in the camera and when the thing appeared behind her. So I like missed all of the scares so I could focus on the lighting. So when the teacher was then like, what did we think about this scene? I could be like, I thought it was really clever how they did this instead of being like. Ah! <laughs> the whole time. Oh, my God, um, the storyboarding is such a good idea. <laughs> so I knew exactly when to look away. <laughs> There's a great YouTube series. Um, I think it's called Pretty Disturbing or Quite Disturbing. But the guy just breaks down what happens in like horror movies. Cause, like there's certain ones that I'm never going to watch. Like I am never going to watch Martyrs. But I was intrigued to know what it was about. And now that I know, I don't need to watch it. <laughs> he does some really good ones about just like really disturbing horror movies. I'm just like, yeah. I don't know. I went down a rabbit hole, but like he, he breaks it down really well. Nice. It's so interesting. It really is. Um, and this is such a brilliant, like, baby's first horror movie 
Yeah. Like Don Bluth really sort of introduces you to the genre in that way, alongside Tim Burton and everything that he was doing in stop motion animation. Um, so, and like, we're so thankful to them because as I say, like you don't get it anymore. Like you don't, there's, I doubt there's a, a real threat of death in the new Peter Rabbit movies that there was in the old Beatrix Potter cartoons because Squirrel Nutkin lost his fucking tail. And, like, that was real. And, like, it got pecked off by an owl because he was a cocky little shit. Whereas, like, now, I don't know, I haven't seen it. Maybe I'm wrong, but I can't imagine James Corden being like, oh, no, I have a real fear of mortality. I just see him sort of being like... (laughs) Peter Rabbit. I know, um, I'm kind of American and I'm cheeky. It's just like, <laughs> I think it's because, do you know what it is? And I, it's something that I really appreciate now that I'm older. I know that like Don Blue's Films is an Irish American production, but I have a real soft spot for British cartoons and British animation from like the 80s and 90s as well. Cause like I grew up on it, it was on television. One of my favorite like British animations was uh, The Wind in the Willows with Rick Mail as Toad. <sighs> Well, like they have more of a bite to them yeah they've got a darkness there and I love that and I think it's because maybe it's just like the like the sense of humor on this side of the pond is just a bit more like ironic and sarcastic than the American sure. joke very much just more slapsticky that like maybe is that difference that like it could just come true in the storytelling yeah Oh, definitely, definitely. And that's such an interesting point that because they were Irish American, they were able to go that one step further that the more Disney stateside stuff wasn't doing. Um, you quick, sorry, just very quickly, just because you mentioned Tim Burton and his kind of like um, his kind of falling out with Disney. I find it funny that like um, one of the last things that um, Tim Burton was working on in Disney was he was doing the background animals on The Fox and the Hound. And that was around the same time that Don Blute left. And I'm just like, that's really interesting. Because like they took about 20% of the good animation animators at the time to go and leave and set up Don Blute's films. And I find it fascinating that like that period in Disney, like in the 80s, like you got Black Cauldron and then kind of a lot of ones that are completely forgotten about now, like Oliver and Company and something else in the 80s. Couldn't even remember them. But it yeah. wasn't until like they pretty much like I feel like I want to, I would love there to be a story, kind of like a documentary of like we're Disney doing shady shit behind the scenes to make Don Blue's films sink. Because the amount of times that studio lost funding, lost distribution, um, went bankrupt, the amount of times that happened, it, it's not a coincidence. Because like, I feel like, I feel like Disney went to some shady efforts because the, the Don Blades effort during that time period, those movies were great. Like kids oh, say yeah. they were great. Critics disagree, but they could have been in Disney's pockets. Who knows? I don't know. But I just feel that like it wasn't until like the blue threat was gone in the in the nineties that the Disney then came back with their big renaissance. And I just find that time period in between those two points really fascinating. And I'd love to know what actually happened. Oh my god, so fascinating. I completely agree. Don Bluth ruled the eighties and like, you know, critics were on board with an American tale and the land before time and the secret of Nim. Like the very early movies especially were absolutely 
gorgeous animations and and so successful and you're right he took the creme de la creme of disney with him to start up the studio and then you think about disney going into the 90s with um the thief and the cobbler and kimber the white lion and like all of these shady things in the background that are like lawsuit it was never proved haha we have our stuff now that's more successful kind of stuff that we that we're aware about so without a doubt, there was some bullshit happening in the 80s where they were like, fuck, shit, crap, God, oh, competition for the first time in ages. What are we going to do about it? Um, so I would not be surprised if someone was employed to like, I will trip up all the animators on their I, way into the studio. <laughs> I want to I want to know. I want to hear what Steven Spielberg has to say, because Amblin were there to like Don Blaze was friends with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg they were they helped create The Land Before Time they were working on behind the scenes with the Bluth films and getting these films made and like there is a different universe where they went on an Amblin and Amblimation which was the animation studio they called it just just absolutely conquered Disney in the 90s and 2000s and is still going strong but because they like creative differences happened between Don Bluth and Spielberg and he left and that's when a lot of the funding was pulled and they had to go to Goldcrest Films who then pulled funding as well and that ended the entire studio I just I want to know what happened so bad I want to know what the differences were like creative differences isn't enough to have like pulled this entire vision of this competitive studio within animation in America like it's yeah no you're absolutely I'm completely on board like I want to know and maybe one day we'll find out maybe one day Spielberg will be like I'm breaking my silence on the uh, <laughs> late 80s animation battle in America I want it I would lap that up I'd pay so much money to watch that documentary so much money <laughs> like I need to I know just, I, I really need to know because like them blue so blues films like uh, Blute Sullivan at the uh, at the beginning, they ended up hiring and employing so many people in Dublin and Ireland. There were almost, there was almost eight hundred people at one point employed in Dublin, and they set up the first animation course in Ballyfermot College that is still going today. That that resulted in another animation course being set up, and like they created an entire industry here. Probably well, mostly because there was tax breaks here in Ireland. Like that's that's the main reason why a lot of people come here. But the fact that like everybody has a story connected to the studio, which I find such a beautiful thing. Like we're such a creative country and Dublin's such a creative city. And like there was a real black hole left when Blues Films left. And like it didn't recover for a long time, but like we're seeing it now with Brownback Films, with Cartoon Saloon, um, just how much the and like those animators who were part of Blue Studios, like or had some connection, they are now like making their own studios, which I find amazing. Like I'm a huge fan of Irish animation, and I'm delighted to see where it's going now in the future. It's a legacy, it really is. And like Cartoon Saloon, guys, if you haven't checked it out fucking go and watch everything they are possibly pushing out because they are getting better and better i thought um the fucking secret of cows was the best thing i'd ever seen and then song of the sea came out and then i saw wolf walkers and i was like they are just topping themselves with every single movie um wolf walkers especially i was like fuck soul give all the, the fucking awards to that like i know i broke my heart when i didn't but like 
we got the acclaim, which I think is worth as much. And and, and it'll be it'll in time we'll find out which one was was the better film because I feel like there should be like a a post dated Oscars like. 10 years down the line and like you yeah. get to reassess all the winners and be like did we make the right choice yeah because like you're gonna look back and go like oh my god why didn't save a private ryan get more awards why didn't goodfellas get any awards why do we never give an oscar to amy adams like come on like and just like reassess yeah. those things literally completely agree i feel like we can't talk about all dogs go to heaven without mentioning the origin story of the fat-lipped alligator moment oh my god <laughs> the king gator which if you don't know it uh, there's a trope within cinema called the fat-lipped alligator moment and it's when something um appears out of nowhere with no build-up and no real context is is completely bizarre and then disappears without a trace and is never mentioned again and it stems from this movie and we'll go into why in a minute because also on top of that there are arguments that its namesake the fat-lipped alligator that we meet in all dogs go to heaven actually isn't a fat-lipped alligator moment because he appears again at the end to eat car face and is therefore not fully representational of the fat-lipped alligator trope um but king gator is um one of the best moments of this movie we fall down into this terrifying pit full of skulls and death and threat and we are kidnapped by the little mice from an american tale which hasn't come out yet i don't think (laughs) but they are basically reused um and set up as tribute to an unknown monster and we're in new orleans which isn't obvious really until until this moment i would i mean we do have mardi gras at the beginning of the movie but i didn't attribute it to new orleans i was like i guess americans just celebrate mardi gras i get i mean it's a fun why not why not it's that or july 4th i don't know america um and the arrival of king gator who is voiced oh my goodness uh by ken page who you will know and love like i want to say he's oogie boogie he's um the original that's the one (laughs) i was like i'm not gonna be able to say his name um he's wonderful you know him you love him um you recognize his voice instantly and he he turns up and he's got this horrible like skull of throne of skulls and like it's all very damp and dark and scary and then he tries to eat charlie he puts him in his mouth like we get very close to death here again um but then charlie howls which has sort of been planted and we're sort of being paid off now you can argue that um and he's like oh my god i couldn't possibly eat someone who has such a wonderful singing voice so he doesn't eat him and then his palace turns into like instagram influencer central and everything (laughs) is like pink and glittery with like flowers and it's beautiful and he sings this incredible song to charlie and everyone's just living their best 
life and it's so joyous and it doesn't look like anything we've seen previously in this movie which has been quite grungy and smoky and we're suddenly in this like glitter hall of goodness where we're like got wonderful moments where he's swimming underwater so his singing voice is like bubbly and it's just so much fun i love the scene problematic tropes aside oh my goodness like yes. it, it's, a, <laughs> it's a gigantic effeminate alligator with pink lips and a big gay palace like there's there are many things that at the time were considered fun and right now would probably seem as problematic as saying Siam with a symbol on top of your head at the beginning of this film. Yes. But I love it. Because the, the guy, it, Ken Page, his voice, Oogie Boogie. Like, if you want to get over your fear of Oogie Boogie, just watch him as King Gator and you'll fall in love. And the song lets me mute it together. I love the idea that, like, oh, because it's New Orleans, I love music. So, therefore, you're a good singer. So, you can't die because you have to make music with me. We need to make music together. But then it's also the underlying, like, are they, is, is he trying to, if, when he says let's make music together, is he also trying to um, make love to the dog as well? Like, it's uncertain, but if, I think, like, parents might have had that going through their heads where it's like little kids are like, I like this song. This song is fun. But yeah and parents are like no like, not oh, the lgbt's in my house well, um, i find it funny i didn't know about the term fat-lipped alligator or fat-lipped gator but it's funny that he becomes a fat-lipped gator deus ex machina at the end just coming out of nowhere to save the day save the day my new boyfriend's turning up to eat my enemy um yeah, like, absolutely. It's, um, you know, much like everything in the 80s and 90s, and this isn't an excuse, but so it's, they, they, they would do shortcuts with a lot of things. And as such, they would have a lot of problematic stereotypes and um, representations of things that they should have thought better about, but didn't because they wanted to give a quick, shorthanded sort of thing across. Um, and and it's and it's you know it's rife in Disney um, even in the 90s and like people always give it a pass and you're like well why does Aladdin look like Tom Cruise and Jafar look like fucking your worst terrorist nightmare as drawn mm. by the Daily Mail like why um, they're both why from is, the um, same place yeah and like why is Scar the only one who has a black mane because he's the bad guy and he's also the only British um, lion in the pack as well the rest of them were American. That's a trope that like I find very interesting is like especially like the last time I saw it, that when it was pointed out to me I was like hey was like in Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr Fox where all the animals were American but all the bad guys were British and I'm just like uh-huh hmm okay interesting choices there interesting but it's, like the kind of it's funny the coding Sorry, for, oh yeah the coding for villains in kids movies like it's just funny, like, you know these things are going over the, kid, the heads of kids. Um, and they're, like, you can see the, the, the meeting when they're talking about going, like, ah, it's grand, like, like, let's just move on. Like, we're, it's just a shorthand. He's flamboyant. He's fine. Let's moving on. He's fun. Like, we're, we like the, the character design. It's goofy. It's flamboyant. That's fun. Let's move on. Let's get back to doggy hell and make it more grotesque. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally. Um... But yeah, and so it sort of coined this trope that then went on. I don't believe it's something that you have a lot of modern 
examples of. Um, it was a very sort of 80s, 90s, possibly early 2000s thing, um, which, I mean, let me just, I should have done my research. I just want to give a couple of examples in case people are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so in Fern Gully, oh, obviously the best movie ever made there's that big carnivorous lizard that turns up to sing one song and then leaves um the pink elephant scene in dumbo is arguably one of them um the beautiful animated titanic movies are full of them if you've ever seen any of them they took the tragedy of the sinking of the titanic and they made animated musicals out of them if you haven't seen them do they're marvelous in that they are terrible um it's a lot of don bluth <laughs> examples on here um but yeah like great 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 stuff big fan big fan um <laughs> hey mr gator i'm a huge fan um and as per the um 80s 90s early 2000s animated movie for children that is a musical we get a very dramatic intense rendition of the love theme as it's always called um in the credits sung by two acclaimed singers um that goes on for about four minutes and it is my favorite thing in the whole wide world to have a song in the movie that's often very humble and sung by a main character um in character and then to hit the credit sequence and then be like that again but celine dion like it is my favorite thing in the whole wide world i find it so hilarious and this does not disappoint we have Anne marie's beautiful little heartfelt rendition of like where is love basically and then we get Irene Cara and like some other bloke doing like a version and it is the best thing in the world. So it was Freddie, Irene Cara and Freddie Jackson. I was just talking about this trope yesterday because my, we were talking about Eurovision is on this week because for people who know what Eurovision is, it's a European wide song contest and all the songs are just ridiculous. It's the best thing ever. It's the best thing ever. Go go watch um, Fire Saga. It's so much fun. But we were talking. There one. Of, there was one of the songs, and it's like, what does this song remind me of? And it's like, oh, it reminds me of when Demi Lovato sings "Let It Go," and it's not as good as Adina Menzel. And it's just like I, I never understood like what soundtracks was like. My first soundtrack was my first album that I ever got when I was a kid was the Lion King soundtrack. Absolute banger. But it's like you do get well. That's a bad example because Elton John does sing the song in the credits, doing all the renditions in the credits. Yeah, but but you're absolutely right. That was the era for it. But Hercules was a great example. Um, um, Go the distance. Um, which is song not Michael Bolton. Yeah, and I'm just like yeah. I'm just like, I love Michael Bolton's song, um, voice, so but it's all so good. confusing over the credits. It's like, oh, but like so that song good. was like by, a, like supposed to be sung by like a teenage boy. And you have Boyzone on the very same soundtrack and you got Stephen <laughs> Gately right there. Why didn't he sing it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Have to be the Michael, Michael Bolton version of Go the Distance is one of the greatest songs ever. <laughs> I love it so 
much. I'm such a sucker for it. My absolute, the, the pinnacle of this trope is in Muppet Treasure Island, where in the movie, Kermit and Miss Piggy sing a song to each other as they're hanging off the cliff in their little voices. And they're all like, love led us here, right back to where we belong. And then we hit the credits and suddenly it's like, Ooh, and you're like oh fuck yeah we're gonna fucking go for it and it's like five minutes long and they're like love let us here and it's like so <laughs> insane and they're like they're acting like it's the most important thing in the world and you're like yes i mean the the most well-known example will be when we believe when you believe from um the prince of egypt which was then shot number one yeah the like dream team um like that song is renowned and like the prayer as well by Celine Dion and insert Italian opera singer here um, was huge. And that came from the magic sword quest for Camelot. Um, So, so many of them like road to Eldorado also had the Elton John effect where he was just like, Hey, it's me just doing all the songs Mm. in the credits. Christina Aguilera Mulan. (gasps) Yes. And then she redid it for the live action. And again, like, some of them are awful. Like, I don't like Belinda Carlisle's um, I Won't Say I'm In Love because they take it from, like, a funky uh, big number to, to a solo number where it, it, do- it doesn't work because she's telling herself shit that another character should be. Whatever. Yeah, it just it doesn't like, quite work. Hercules songs work just as they should be in the film. Like, I just want, yeah. whenever I'm looking on Spotify, I went on, like, a Disney soundtrack binge there a while ago and it's like, no, I just want the the songs where it's the singers from the movie, not the other yeah. ones. Yeah. Can we go back to that with the ones that I liked? Because I want to remember the emotional beats of it. Yes, exactly. And the first album I ever got of Disney songs were all of the like credits version where you have like Shaggy doing fucking Under the Sea. And you're like, no, <laughs> stop. It has to be Sebastian. <laughs> and then I got the proper one that was like, now that's what I call Disney, where you get the beats so you know to go... at the right moments which doesn't happen in the like credits version um so yeah you gotta get those beats in i wonder but i've today like 90s kids movies like 90s business movies and the soundtracks like i wonder if kids today have that same kind of relationship with soundtracks for movies because like albums aren't really a thing anymore for kids i suppose because streaming yeah you can just find it like I remember coming home from the cinema and immediately finding let it go on YouTube and just listening to it on repeat like this is a good song and then obviously within the year it was like let it go it's like everywhere Mm. um and it was just so easy for me there was no hype there was just like that was a good song I'm gonna listen to it for the rest of the evening whereas before it was like oh my god we've got it on tape like oh I've gone out and bought it like it's available now like or or like some of the Android Webber musicals you could buy before it hit theatres so you knew the songs and then you were able to go into the show already knowing the songs whereas yeah nowadays it's just like it's gone from an entire album down to one song like all mm-hmm. the kids movies have one song and like yeah Despicable Me had Happy and or that was the sequel but like the, I they're robbing kids like you're missing out on an entire album of music because like it's just it's an entire like uh, uh, the Disney musicals I suppose they're not so much musicals anymore these days unless it is like the Frozens and the Moanas but like mm. I just like I want more of that and like not, 80s 90s Disney's 
we're, we're going way off topic because we're it's John Blake. We're talking about John Blake, <laughs> but we but can't talk about John Blake without talking about nineties. Yeah, and 80s exactly. Blues. They're so connected. Um, and yeah, he was clearly trying to follow this formula that hadn't even become a formula yet, because you could argue that Oliver and Company is a musical and, you know, they got um, some really great voices in there. I mean, Bette Midler is Georgette and her song is like top tier Disney song, but it's and never Billy played. Yeah. And, and Billy Joel as well. <laughs> Such absolute bangers. Um, the song from The Rescuers, not so much. Uh, and I don't think Basil the Great Mouse Detective had any songs, but but All Dogs Go to Heaven does. It has quite a few songs. It has uh, Can't Keep a Good Dog Down. The best song. I'm sorry, <laughs> but that is the best song because it's so <laughs> freaking catchy. Like you can hear it in your head. Go, you can't keep a good dog down. No, 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 no. You can't keep a good dog down. But it's just so much fun. So I much fun. I totally get where you where you're coming from with like kind of like the formula is it's still in like the chemistry of it is there but it's not fully formulated yeah yeah like as we've said this this came out the same time as the little mermaid which has its like opening song then establishing song then the i want song then the villain song then the love song then the end song and like that's the musical format whereas this has like the charlie is cool song the exposition song well, welcome to heaven don't fuck it up song the charlie's an all right guy song the i want some oh, no. parents song um but yeah like they're all sort of there's not a sort of opening closing like Carface doesn't even get a song so we don't really know much about him as a as a villain i guess the the villain in this movie is more the concept of death is that fair to say? Greed and death and like not lead, and not leading a moral life. Yeah. Yeah. Because Carface is, I don't know much about him other than like he's perpetuating that stereotype that bulldogs are evil. Yeah, yeah. which is so which sad. Is so they're the most beautiful little creatures. But yeah, like he's Charlie's business partner. He was trying to muscle him out and take all the money for himself. He imprisons an orphan who has the ability to talk to animals and predict the races. Like we haven't even talked about the horse races yeah. or the rat races. <laughs> the Grand Chahi. Oh, the Grand Chahi. So cute. Like it's just like a given. They're like Anne-Marie can talk to animals and um, very in a very anti-Disney way, she uses this ability to find out how the different animal races are going to be rigged so we can bet on the winning horse. And the Grand Chahi, well, it's his birthday, so he's got to win. Yeah, all the other horses are very much like, no, 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 we're not allowed to win today. We have to let Chahi win, even though he's like a slack-jawed yokel of a horse. He probably should have been put out to pasture a while ago. But he's so, he's the way he's drawn is so adorably goofy that like you can't help but smile when they when he comes up on screen. Oh, for sure. For sure. And there's so many of those little character designs. Like I've mentioned the prostitute dog who I'm in love with. Alongside her, there's this little like, like, like breaking the fourth wall dog. That's like, I don't, how did I even describe him? I can't even really like remember. It was just so weird. Like the little yellow dog that's like, <laughs> I win. 
And then he's like handed a tiny bit of meat and he's like, oh, like look straight down the camera and you're like, what are you? Like what breed are you? Is it like a little chihuahua or something? Yeah. And it's just the, the designs are so funny. And then like Carface has got this assistant who looks like he's meant to be like a dorky accountant dog. But then he's like really evil. Like well, that's why he's got the leather, position. the leather collar that's just so ill-fitting on him, and it just looks yeah. like a nerd wearing a, like a leather jacket. It just doesn't make yeah. sense, but it's funny. It's so funny, and he's like oversized glasses, and just all of the little dog designs are so fun. And like Charlie is like a handsome dog, and Itchy is like a funny-looking dog, and they just—it's just really well thought out. And again, it's just the animation is just so fun and tangible, um, and and great. Like it's—it's it's so enjoyable. Like it—it it really is. I haven't seen a troll in Central Park, but I was of the understanding, um, and please prove me wrong, that it was one of the lesser acclaimed Don Bluth. There's like Secret of Nim. And then we like slowly go down until we get to like the pebble and the penguin and the mm. troll in Central Park. I, well, I will defend the pebble and the penguin because like they were doing happy feet before happy feet were doing happy feet. Like they were the original cute penguins. But, and they were doing right. it with Tim Curry. So, you know, that's it. You can't, you can't go wrong with Tim Curry. But yeah, you definitely see like a steep decline in the quality of the output from Blue Studios, starting with Secret Name, um, An American Tale, and Land Before Time. And then after all dogs go to heaven, you can see where the purse strings are being pulled, people are pulling out, and then you're getting into your Thumbelinas, um, the many, many sequels of The Land Before Time. <laughs> and then you get to Troll in Central Park and then ending with The Pebble and The Penguin, which is unfortunate. Yeah. But like, I still think, like, even like, I know that they're not technically blues films. You can definitely see the animators and the creative voices who were behind those films in the likes of Balto and Anastasia and then with Titan AE. Like they were, they're still, I still consider them blues films, even though the the studio was long since gone at that point. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, yeah, Train Central Park has a great villain. Um, really cool, a uh, really cool death sequence. Oh no, I'm thinking of um, We're Back, which is the dinosaurs in Central Park. Two movies that I confused as a kid, but yeah, Stanley the troll, and tr- he, he's a troll with a green thumb and he makes things grow and like part of that eco kind of warrior thing in the 90s. I enjoyed it as a kid. I haven't watched it since then. Maybe I'll rewatch it. I don't know, but I don't and think... And then come back on so I can watch it. Yeah. Like, please do. But I think uh, I, even when I was a kid, I remember going like, this isn't as good as Lion King. I'm just going to watch that again. Yeah, and I think that's it, isn't it? Whereas Anastasia was very much the Disney formula to the point where I've um, now wasted most of my life dying on the hill that Anastasia is Don Bluth and not Disney and shouting at anyone that had the fucking audacity to be incorrect. And then, of course, Fox got bought by Disney, which technically then made Anastasia a Disney. Everything's Um, Disney now. And it it was ruined. I was like my life's work down the drain what do I stand for now what do I do what is my purpose in life um because for years I would be there at every conversation over every shoulder to go actually Anastasia's not Disney um I know like that's really confusing because it acts like a Disney like it's very Disney formula but actually it's not a Disney um it's 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 a Don Bluth yeah 
Yeah, look at the hat that she's wearing. She's wearing Feifel's hat in a different color. And like an American (laughs) tale starts with the Bolshevik cats running the little Jewish mice out of their village so that they have to leave to go to America. And like in Anastasia or Anastasia, I always confuse it with the singer and how it's pronounced. But like, it's like the same, they're in the same starting point. They're in Russia. They're like, she's got the clothes. Like it's all the connections between American Tale and Anastasia. They're there. Yeah. So much so. So much so. And like the fucking darkness of it all. The like gremlins that come out of the satanic communist devil deal. Like... That that's not what you get in a Disney. Like Scar oh. just wanted to own Pride Rock. Rasputin, like, <laughs> sold his fucking soul to the devil <laughs> for communism. Um, yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, but yeah, anything else to say on All Dogs Go to Heaven? I, I mean, so I, much to say. I still love it. I still I have a DVD copy of it, and my sister, like when I bought it for, I bought it for her for her birthday when, she, like, we were in our, our late twenties at the stage. I was like, oh my god, I found this on DVD. Let's relive our childhoods. And it's just like there are certain films where, like, you feel the tears coming before you get to the scene. You just anticipate it, and like, oh my, All Dogs Go to Heaven is one of those movies where, like, you. It feels like coming home when you watch it for the first time after a good few years. Yeah. It's the only way I can describe it. And like, it's just like, it's one of those keystone movies from my childhood where I'm just like, I will go back to this again and again. And it will bring me back to that feeling of when I was a child. That's literally what this podcast is all about. That is so perfect. Like, that is so lovely. Um, yeah, I that was so many movies. It's such a lovely feeling. And this one really is emotional. Like, right at the end there, he's about to be dragged back to hell and that lovely little whippet lady turns up again and she's all like, Charlie, because you sacrificed your life for this young girl, you can come back to heaven. And he gets to go to heaven. And it's still really tragic because he still died in the prime of his youth. Um, but Itchy it and a with, good cause. Anne Marie Anne gets saved. She gets a new family. Itchy gets a home with Anne Marie as well. And it's just like people do end up where they should be at the end of the film, which I think is yeah. a blue ending. That like people end up where they should be, not yes. everyone gets a happy ending. Yes, definitely. And you know, arguably in film law, Charlie needs to pay for all of his filmic sins. Like you you know, almost Hayes Code-esque, like he couldn't live, um, but he at least gets to have a noble death. Um, And yeah, it's incredibly emotional and and terrifying and and lovely and sweet. And I just find it very funny as well that we've gone years and years and years where no one's tried to back out of heaven. And then within a week, this poor Whippet is dealing with Charlie and then Carface trying to do the same thing. And she's like, I swear to fucking God. (laughs) Um, but yeah it's a wonderful movie it really is I was so 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 happy when you picked it I was so excited to go back and rewatch it and it really didn't disappoint at all like it's I wish I'd had it as a kid I wish I'd had those nightmares as a kid I know that sounds weird but like I really loved the dark stuff when I was a kid um, and I, I would have loved this so much and I wanted that feeling I wanted that returning home feeling but I don't quite get it because I don't connect it with that nostalgia but I have I have plenty of others to do that with and um, so thank you so much for coming on and talking about it 
thanks for letting me talk for absolutely ages now about <laughs> Don Bluth and the Irish animation industry and just problematic tropes and all this crap. <laughs> it's my favourite thing to talk about. I'm glad that like there's someone else to be like, yes, it actually the studio. And I'm like, yes, go tell them, tell them. Because <laughs> usually yeah. I bore people with it. Um, But yeah, tell us about you. Like you do a million things and they're all incredible so tell us where can we find you where should we follow you what you do oh yeah so I'm Megan Highland I am um, I also um, have a blog called Megan's Movie Alphabet it was an art project where I took the first letter of a movie and created a poster based solely around that one letter and I did it through A to Z twice and then I did one two three and four I might revisit it again someday, but I'm in the, in, it used to be on Tumblr. I'm moving it onto Instagram very gradually. <laughs> but I also, I'm an illustrator. I, you can find me on Instagram at Meg Highland, um, where I do a lot of kind of like pop culture kind of artworks and prints. Like I do work with Gallery 88 in LA and I've done licensed prints for like, for Disney, um, Cartoon Network, uh, 20th Century Fox and yeah and I'm on Twitter and Instagram and I'm I try to be funny but who knows I'm just shouting (laughs) into the void on there yay aren't we all that's what Twitter's for really Um, completely yeah amazing that's so cool that's so awesome um yes please go I will put all of your links in the show notes so please go and check them all out um thank you so much for coming on please come on again and do more Don Bluth because we Mm -hmm. have a severe lack of Don Bluth um, we can currently. talk for ages about I will talk about an American tale I will talk about Fightful Goes West I will talk about Land Before Time the first one not sequels but of yes course. we'll definitely come back <laughs> I look forward to it and we'll see you next time on Why This Film bye